I left Italy just when this crisis period started. The woman I was taking care of got sick and was taken to hospital. She eventually died from the coronavirus and I didn't have anything to do there anymore. They tested me and I was negative, so I left. Hello and welcome to Stephanomics, the podcast that brings the COVID global economy to you. And that was Mihaela Danaela, one of hundreds of thousands of Romanians working abroad who've gone home in the past few months. It's a reminder that stay-at-home orders mean something different if you're one of more than 150 million migrant workers around the world whose home and family might be a long way away. They're another group at the sharp end of this COVID crisis. The sectors they work in, hospitality, construction, domestic service, have been taking the brunt of the collapse in the economy. And many, like Michaela, have headed for home. Others stay in their adoptive countries, but find themselves second-class citizens, without access to government support and health care. Either way, the COVID crisis for migrants is going to have big economic effects for both their adopted country and the communities they left behind. We're getting into a few different pieces of that massive global story today. In Dubai, in the United Arab Emirates, the population could fall 10% this year due to expat workers heading home. I'll be talking to Bloomberg's Middle East economy reporter, Abir Abu Amar, about what that means for the Gulf economy's economic model, where foreign workers do nearly all the work. We'll also talk about whether the many migrants still stuck in Dubai without work are getting any help from the government. Then I'll head to Singapore to talk through the economics of global migrant flows with Bloomberg opinion columnist Dan Moss. Also, what it means for countries like the Philippines to have the flow of earnings from migrant workers suddenly dry up. But first, let's hear a bit more about that Romanian story from one of the people who helps run our economics and government coverage in Central and Eastern Europe, Andrew Langley. Andrew, tell me a bit more about this story. How many migrants are we talking about that have been going home to Central and Eastern European countries? The countries we looked at specifically for this story were Romania, Ukraine, um, Serbia, and a little bit of Bulgaria. Romania had the biggest inflows. About 1.3 million people came back. Um, Ukraine, the the numbers there have always been a little bit difficult to, to calculate, but there are several hundred thousand probably. In Serbia, we're also talking a uh, significant portion of the population. Uh, I think um, 6% of the population, a fifth of the workforce, about 400,000 workers. For Romania, the population is about 20 million people. So um, 1.3 is obviously a significant uh, uh, addition to that. The the Serbs were were even more. That was was 6% of the population. So it's, it's a lot of people. Let's hear a bit more from Mihaela now, who was in Italy and then has come has come home. To be honest, I don't think I'll ever return because living among strangers is hard. After nine years, my boys stayed with my mom all this time and this was the hardest thing I ever did, to live far away from him. But we'll see what happens. It will be great if I manage to stay. I need to see if I manage to get a job here. I hope I'll make it here in Romania. First of all, we managed totally differently with the money I made in Italy. My son now has a computer, clothes, we managed to renovate the house, everything we need. 
I don't think I would have managed to do all these things with the salaries here. But we'll see. People say things have changed in Romania as well. Let's see what happens in the next few months. We wait for now. So she sounds like she might stay home now. Are the governments uh, happy to have all of these people coming back? What's been their attitude? The circumstances are obviously not ideal. They would have preferred these people, um, if they were going to go abroad, that they, they worked over there, they, they studied over there, and they brought back the skills and education that they, that they garnered in Western Europe. But uh, at the same time, they've been struggling, like most of Eastern Europe, with acute labour shortages for several years now. So these workers are, are, are welcome. For the short term, they will, they will obviously be boosting the unemployment numbers due to the, the lockdown and the extended effects of that. But once the economy starts to uh, start to open up again and start to grow, Eastern Europe has generally been um, a much faster growing region than Western Europe. Then the governments hope to harness these people who have come back or at least a, a share of them and, uh, and use them to, to build future growth. I mean, I guess one of the big differences with this crisis is it is affecting everywhere. I mean, what we've seen in the past, particularly in Europe, actually, um, where countries have faced a deep recession. Uh, I remember this in the, the global financial crisis. Uh, some of the countries in the, uh, in the Baltics saw a massive outflow of workers when their economy shrank, which helped sort of ease some of the burden on their economies. If everyone's being hit now at the same time, you're not going to get immigration as that kind of safety valve. But I guess it's true. It seems to be the case that these Central and Eastern European countries so far uh, have been hit less hard by COVID. Is that right? Yes, that's also true. They were very fast to lock down. Um, and the, the certainly in terms of the healthcare hit, then it's been far, far, far less than we saw in Western European countries. The economic hit is uh, in many cases similar. I think the, the best performance probably in the, in the EU this year is going to be the Polish uh, contraction, which is, I think, to be about between 3 and 4%. But obviously, they're all, they're all taking a hit, yes, economically. And there's going to be, we're going to talk about this later in the programme, but there's a, there's a, there will be a hole where all those remittances used to be. I mean, Michaela and all the millions of people who were in different parts of Western Europe sending back their salaries. I mean, that is an extra, that is an extra burden for these economies at a time when they are dealing with a global recession, even if they're not facing as much problem from COVID. Yes, that's also true. But I, I, these governments are hoping that the, uh, the, the flip side of the coin, the, the uh, increased labour force and the increased ability to, to generate uh, economic output is going gonna, is gonna to counter that. Ukraine had uh, record remittances of $12 billion in 2019, but it's also seen huge, huge outflows of people. There were, I think, more than a million people alone uh, in Poland, and they've been a huge source of labour for uh, some of the Eastern European countries in the European Union. Ukraine's looking to certainly utilise these people. Uh, they have about 300,000 who've, who've returned during the lockdown. They're looking at uh, pretty large-scale road construction projects, and they're offering discounted loans also so they can start their own businesses. Well, it is. It's a fascinating side of this. When we have all these discussions about deglobalization, will people after this crisis uh, be less inclined to send production overseas? Will they start bringing jobs home? Actually, it's the people who are moving first. We have these millions of people all coming home before uh, we have a change in the global economy necessarily. Andrew, thanks very much. No problem. Thank you. So that's one perspective on the global migrant story. 
But now let's get a completely different angle on this, talking to our Middle East economy reporter in Dubai, Abir Abu Omar. Abir, anyone who's been to Dubai or other parts of the United Arab Emirates knows these economies are utterly dependent on migrant labour to build every apartment block, service every hotel room. But they don't, those migrants, they don't get really any rights in return. And if they lose their jobs, they're supposed to go immediately home. So what has been happening to them since the onset of the COVID crisis? Hi, Stephanie. So yes, you're right. I mean, in Dubai, the the, the foreign population made up uh, predominantly from blue collar workers makes up more than 90% uh, of the city's population. Now that's a huge number. And then the UAE in general, more than 80% of the population is made up of expats. Um, so since the start of since the start of this outbreak, uh, these people have been suffering. These people have been uh, asking to go back home because in, in part because companies are laying off people with absolutely no safety net in place. So when we talk about what is different for these people, it's the fact that in this part of the world, there is no safety net. Uh, they don't get any kind of residence. They don't get any kind of uh, remittance after they're laid off. And so the only expectation for them is to go back home. Now, with uh, with the flights being suspended and with no option to go back home, some of these people are living on as little as $200 a month um, and waiting for, you know, charity uh, charities to get to get back to them with with food, especially now that we're in Ramadan, which is a month where uh, Muslims in the region fast. Um, So these people are just literally living by what they can get day by day. And we've heard reports about countries in Southeast Asia who are not even accepting uh, their people back. hundreds of thousands of Indian Pakistani workers, which make up the majority of the expat population here, have asked to go back home. Um, And India and Pakistan, India mainly, was saying that, you know, we we can't accept, we can't accept our people at this moment. Are we going to see just a big change in the structure of the, the Gulf economies coming out of this? If they, if we don't know what happens to these workers when this kind of crisis hits? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think so. And that trend has been on the rise since the outbreak um, gained momentum in the region. You have a lot of big officials who weren't necessarily as vocal before coming out and saying a population shrinkage could have a devastating economic implication for Gulf countries that are very much dependent on these expat workers. But when you have an expat worker that you expect to work and you don't and you don't necessarily provide um, any kind of uh, stability, those people are going to leave, and it's and it's not just blue co- collar workers. It's it's teachers, it's engineers, it's it's uh, businessmen who are thinking they can't sustain this kind of living um, if they're laid off. And what's different about the model in the UAE or in the Gulf in general is that most of these countries have taken a more monetary policy change. So there has not been any kind of uh, direct fiscal um, spending uh, for for these workers. So we don't see any kind of wage guaranteeing. We don't see any kind of fund that is dedicated for those people. Uh, the, the only thing we're seeing is the central banks are, are giving uh, lenders some kind of space to, to ease their fees, to ease their interest rates, to 
to give a better better interest on loans. But that's not what the people are asking for. And that's definitely not what the people who are going to leave are asking for. People want direct measures that help them during this time. And we're not seeing that happening yet. Yeah, and I've noticed that that the the economies of we're always you know they're so dependent on the oil revenues, and we've seen obviously the collapse in the oil prices, and so countries like Saudi Arabia this week actually announcing big cuts in spending, which is the opposite of what everyone else is doing because they didn't save in the good times when the oil price was was higher. And I guess the short term question is just what is going to happen to all these people? I mean, there's such a large number of people who sound like they are trapped in the region and the support that government is offering i noticed when they are giving any help to workers or companies it's all for citizens much more than for for others uh are you starting to see these migrants on the street what's going to happen to them what those people want is some kind of direct uh measure that would help them at least get by uh get by on a daily basis I mean, a lot of people on social media pages are becoming more vocal about their struggle. A lot of people on, um, uh, I heard that a lot of people on on Reddit, a a very popular website in in the UAE, are asking for food and are asking for a place to stay. And in this kind of environment, you never saw, you never saw something like that happening before, but it is happening now. And so no government wants to see people coming out, going out of their of their um, countries, but it looks like the model that the government here is taking is more uh, is more like, yes, we let those people leave. Uh, we won't compromise or sacrifice the system that we've been going by since for decades. And if they leave after this ends, we'll just get more people, which is which is a more costly process and a more time consuming process. But it doesn't look like they're going to change the way they're um, they're thinking now from what we're seeing. No, I think that's that's fascinating. And I see that uh, our Middle East economist, the Ad Daoud, was talking about the population of Dubai uh, falling by t- at least 10 percent this year just with those um, migrants leaving. But you don't think it's going to change anytime soon. Abir Abu Omar, uh, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. So I'd like to bring all of this together now with Dan Moss, a Bloomberg opinion columnist covering Asian economies out of Singapore. Um, Dan, there are obviously two sides to this migrant story. There's the countries that depend on large amounts of migrant labour to keep their economies functioning. And then there's the communities back home that rely on the money those migrant workers send back. Um, You think the COVID crisis has kind of blown a hole through both economic models. The export and import of labour, Steph, uh, is one of the biggest casualties of the COVID-induced downturn. There's a lot of attention's been given to what's happening to semiconductor sales, what's happening on container ships. The export of people that allows many wealthy countries to basically function uh, is at risk. Let's take two economies in Asia that are equally dependent on this transaction. The seller of the labour, the Philippines, and the buyer of the labour, Singapore. 
about a third of Singapore's workforce is comprised of foreigners. Uh, the bulk of those foreigners live in purpose-built dormitories where conditions are cramped uh, and where uh, living conditions have been getting some scrutiny. These are the folks that enable Singapore, famous for its efficiency and its Swiss watch-like economic life, to function. Uh, they drive the subways, they deliver the mail, they build the buildings. So imported labour makes Singapore Singapore. For the Philippines, it provides a huge source of foreign revenue. It supplements the very, very basic uh, and inadequate safety net that the government there has developed. That broader model uh, is at risk. You know, we're obviously have been talking in, in the developed economies about are we now going to be more concerned about the rights for gig workers who've all been uh, lost their jobs and have lost their rights in, res in response to the crisis. Do you think we'll see that kind of change in the attitude towards migrant workers coming out of this? Well, the model as it's currently been constructed uh, is in jeopardy. Some form of this model uh, will survive, probably with some shading around the edges. And that is because both the vendor country and the purchaser company uh, in many ways are equally dependent. You know, when I was in the Philippines uh, meeting families of foreign workers uh, in January, you know, Steph, they were all acutely aware of what the Saudi government was up to in its efforts to uh, reconfigure its economy. They knew more about what was going on with the oil price that week than I did. That's how big the remittance thing is in their lives. The degree of this may change. Some of the contours may alter. I feel like too many people are winning on either side of this labour transaction for it to vanish. But in order to keep those, those migrant workers coming to their economies, do you think the likes of Saudi Arabia or indeed Singapore are going to have to rethink the idea that the, the moment you lose your job, um, you're out? Among the things that are going to have to be rethought are how do these folks live and interact uh, with the local economies uh, in their host nation? The majority of the surge in infections that Singapore has seen have come from purpose-built dormitories where migrant workers who are employed in everything from you know, construction to food and beverage and other things live. It's highly conceivable that these kind of cramped accommodations will just go and it would be a condition of employment uh, that the quality of the housing uh, be raised. You know, if you're stuck in a place because you're quarantined, uh, you've kind of got the worst of all worlds, Steph. You can't go home and get a job at home because you can't leave. This is not specific to Singapore. Few airlines are flying from anywhere right now. But because of uh, lockdown or circuit breaker conditions in the host country, you're not on the job either. You're, you're stuck. Sand is in the gearbox uh, of this critical component of the global labour market. 
When you talk about countries like the Philippines, where 10% of the population at any given time might be working abroad, do you think that's fundamentally distorted the economy or distorted the way even that that families work in that country? Having I know you've spent time there. Uh, no question. Uh, in January, I went down to a community uh, in an area called Laguna. It's about two hours drive uh, south of Manila. Uh, one uh, municipality uh, had the nickname Little Italy. Why? Because so many people had gone to Italy there to find jobs. So, you know, I visited uh, with an NGO worker, you know, a number of uh, families. And these houses were quite nice. Uh, there were multiple generations uh, living there under the one roof. People were quite candid. This standard of living would be inconceivable without the remittances coming in. I spent some time with one person uh, who was the child of what the Filipinos call OFWs, overseas uh, Filipino workers. Absolutely adamant that she and her husband, come hell or high water, would not work in separate countries from each other. Too much of the social fabric just gets frayed. And, you know, in times of downturn, someone who's working as a maid in Dubai or Hong Kong or Singapore uh, might be supporting an entire village, uh, not just an extended family. You know, the problems which beset domestic arrangements in the West, families divorce, People become estranged from each other. I mean, this is rife in the overseas worker community. Ironically, an NGO who took me to some of these families, uh, her husband spent 18 years doing construction in Saudi Arabia. Quite lucrative, supported the family. Just one problem. Uh, she found out he'd been unfaithful and that was the end of that. Now, can all these things happen anywhere, any place, any time? Sure. What's not true is that any place, anywhere, any time, an entire social fabric depends upon it. That's what's at stake in domestic, social and economic relationships in the labour vendor country. Dan Moss, thank you very much. Thank you, Steph. Good to be here. Thanks for listening to Stephanomics. We'll be back next week with more on how COVID-19 is turning the global economy upside down. Remember, you can always find us on the Bloomberg Terminal, website, app, or wherever you get your podcasts. For more news and analysis from Bloomberg Economics, follow at Economics on Twitter. This episode was produced by Magnus Hendrickson, with special thanks to Mihaela Danela, Andra Timu, Andrea Dudik, Andrew Langley, Abir Abu Omar, and Dan Moss. Scott Landman is the executive producer of Stephanomics and the head of Bloomberg Podcasts is Francesca Levy. <laughs>